Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Raghavir Partha Sarathi, author of the book So Simple a Beginning, How Four Physical Principles Shape Our Living World. Raghavir, welcome to the New Books Network. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yeah, so I am a physics professor at the University of Oregon, and I've been on the faculty here since 2006, and I'm what one would call a biophysicist. So my research lab works at the intersection of biology and physics, um, and uh, yeah, I, I study a variety of things, especially related to like gut microbes and how bacteria organize themselves. Um, but my background by training is predominantly in physics. My undergraduate and PhD degrees are in physics, and I, I have been sort of moving more and more uh, into this intersection between physics and the living world, which is where I've been for quite a while now, uh, which has been really just fascinating and um, uh, yeah, fascinating to do and to tell people about. It's such a fascinating crossover because I was thinking about when, if you had asked me when I was in high school science, uh, what two fields of science would seem to be further apart than any other, I would have said physics and biology. And yet, one for me, one of the great fascinating parts of the book was discovering you know, that that crossover and how much can be learned uh, from that you know combination of the two. What led you to write a book in which those uh, biophysical principles are, are, are highlighted? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I think I'll elaborate on this, but one of my main motivations is that the fact that there is such a big intersection between physics and biology is not something that's like widely appreciated and, and widely known, even though it is just amazing and incredibly powerful also for understanding a lot of like biotechnologies and even ethical issues and stuff like that. But it's also actually really interesting that you mentioned like your own high school experience, because that's actually quite similar to my own as well. Um, <laughs> you know, if I think back to when I was in high school, you know, admittedly, I was you know, young and, and uh, naive and immature and so on. Uh, but I really liked physics um, and I really did not like biology. And um, to me, in, in my mind, it felt like physics was this sort of search for universal principles and like quantitative prediction and stuff. And biology, and again, this is a naive view, but it's what I had when I was you know, um, 16 years old or whatever. Uh, biology seemed much more concerned with like details and memorization and, and things like that rather than broad principles. Uh, and it turns out that that's not true, but, but uh, that was my perception at, at the time. And... Um, you know, so I had actually kind of an aversion to biology, even though I actually loved nature quite a lot, you know, being outside and riding my bike and seeing animals and, and that kind of thing. So um, I went to college. I was an undergrad at, at UC Berkeley and, and uh, majored in physics and um, didn't do anything even remotely biologically related. Uh, then I went on to do a PhD at the University of Chicago, and I mostly worked on like nanocrystals and nanostructures and stuff like that. Um, but I had one kind of biophysical side project about like protein structures, but also just from like reading and talking to people and going to talks, I began to get more and more interested in the living world and more and more um, kind of captivated by the idea that, you know, these aren't completely different things. The, the universality of physics and the kind of amazing phenomena that nature has, you know, there are connections between these and there's actually a whole field of uh, investigating those connections. Um, 
And uh, then I went on after that um, to a, what's called a postdoctoral research position and then really dove into to biophysical stuff, especially looking at like the material properties of cell membranes and those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, just really kind of dove into biophysics, you know, 20 years ago or so. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, like I said, there is this just this fascinating and, and large intersection between, um, you know, the, the principles of physics and the way the living world works. And, you know, in some sense, we all know that, like, if I trip and fall, you know, it's not because I have some gene for falling. It's because gravity pulls on me, a living thing, just in the same way it pulls on, you know, a ball or, or, or anything else. So, you know, it's in some sense a triviality to say that living things obey physical laws. But the really deep part is realizing, you know, there's lots of non-obvious things where, you know, principles that guide how matter can organize itself or how things can fit together or move or change shape or things like that at, at scales ranging from like molecules to like whole animals, those act, those provide kind of design principles in a way that, that nature uses in living and non-living things. And we can, we can say a lot by, um, by linking all of these together. Yeah, that, that was one of the parts of the book I thought was most fascinating was how you explain how the things that we see, so many of the things that we see in biology are a consequence, not of, of, of some sort of, uh, you know, necessarily predetermined order or just it, but it's a reflection of the influence of physical principles upon the development of biology and you open your book by talking about uh, five, uh four things that you see as as, as the four physical principles that you see governing living things i was wondering if you could perhaps identify those principles for us and explain broadly uh how they operate in biology before we get into uh, some of the specifics that you discuss in greater detail in your book yeah definitely so you know, um, when I was thinking of you know what is a kind of unifying framework for especially describing a lot of this stuff to a non to like a, a general or, or non scientific audience, um, you know there isn't a sort of set of canonical biophysical principles. Biophysicists you know like to uh, you know there's not a kind of universal agreement what are you know the the ten commandments of biophysics or something like that. <laughs> um, so it's kind of up to all of us to think okay what are things that really are a succinct list that tie together like a lot of of natural phenomena. And um, the four that I kind of framed the book around are four that I think most biophysicists would, would agree with. Uh, and I'll elaborate on all of these, but just kind of briefly, um, the first is the notion of self-assembly, that often the, 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 the rules that dictate how things are put together are encoded in the materials themselves. And um, I'll give some examples in just a moment, but uh, just to give a really brief one that's not even biological, though it ends up being more biological than you might think. You know, a soap bubble, um, you know, everybody's blown soap bubbles. You have this nice spherical soap bubble floating through the air. It's a sphere. It's not a cube or a pyramid or, or anything like that. Um, because basically the, the forces that dictate its shape are kind of intrinsic to the materials of a soap, soap bubble, and it forms itself into this nice spherical shape. So this notion of self-assembly, that kind of the instructions are encoded in the stuff itself, uh, is a very ubiquitous and powerful uh, theme. So self-assembly is one of these. The um, second is the idea that, uh, well, as I refer to it, um, that nature makes use of regulatory circuits. In other words, you can put together the building blocks of life in ways that um, allow those ingredients to make decisions. 
to respond to stimuli in particular ways. And if I see you know, this sugar and not that sugar, I'm going to turn on this gene. So the idea that you can build um, kind of decision-making machinery out of physical components. And interestingly, that's one we're very used to from like non-living you know, computers and things like that. We have uh, things that take inputs and make outputs. But it turns out it's much more general than that. And nature makes use of this as well to basically um, allow living things to, to compute. Um, the third one is what I call predictable randomness, that a lot of the fundamental physical processes underlying um, not just how living things work, but how everything works, are in some sense fundamentally random. There's random jiggling around of molecules. Um, there's a lot of randomness built in. And you can't get away from that. But that randomness has a certain predictability to it. It's like average properties and, and stuff like that um, have well-defined uh, predictable consequences. And nature, interestingly, actually makes use of this. The fact that certain processes just happen without you having to do anything about them, uh, but that their outcomes in, in a kind of average sense are predictable. And I'll give some examples of that um, as well. And finally... Uh, the fourth one is is an idea of scaling, that different um, like physical forces, for example, depend on the size and shape of organisms in very kind of universal ways. So um, one example being you know, forces associated with like gravity and forces associated with like the strength of a bone have a different size dependence, and those relationships end up kind of guiding and constraining the different you know what shapes can an animal or a plant or things like that have. So those four things, like self-assembly, the idea of regulatory circuits, predictable randomness, and scaling, it turns out all of those are very, um, you know, kind of, uh, with the right examples, they're, they're quite intuitive things. And they end up explaining a lot about how life works and how can, one can do things with biotechnologies and so on to, to um, kind of uh, manipulate or, or alter that. Um, and they end up really kind of illuminating this sort of wonderful variety of life that kind of operates within the, the constraints of these physical themes. Yeah, your book, you go into great detail to show how these work in terms of uh, the biology, the construction of, of, of physical forms. And then, you know, and then you go, as you were just saying, into how that can, you know, work and how we're seeing it at work in terms of our growing ability to uh, develop uh, and, and, and manipulate uh, uh, DNA. But I was wondering before we get into that, if you could start by maybe talking about how these physical principles work in terms of the building blocks of life. You have, uh, you spend a, a good part of your book talking about it in, in, in very, very small forms, you know, things that you, that, uh, that you would think that would be, would almost defy the, phys the you know, the notion of, of physical study. Uh, talk about DNA, talk about proteins. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate you know, the notion of biophysical principles and and, and the role they play in terms of shaping those things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, there's lots and lots of just extremely important and just fascinating examples. Um, one of them maybe I'll, I'll start off with is is something I, I uh, that was, in a way, my entry point into biophysics, thinking about membranes. So every single cell um, and every so-called organelle within cells in your body has a membrane that separates you know, inside from outside. And um, so these membranes are, are extremely important. Um, you know, stuff is trafficked through them. I think something like 70% of pharmaceuticals target like proteins and so on at membranes. So they're, they're really important to the cell. 
So you can ask yourself, okay, how, how are these membranes put together? So you can imagine in your mind this you know, really thin um, structure separating inside and outside. And it turns out that all of these membranes have as their kind of fundamental structural element um, something called a lipid bilayer. <clears throat> Sorry, lipid bilayer. So we have these molecules called lipids um, that are little, they have little heads that like water and two little tails that don't like water. So you can imagine in your mind a little ball with two tails sticking off of it. And um, it turns out that if you take a bunch of lipid molecules, and you can do this you know, in the lab or whatever, uh, take a bunch of lipid molecules and just toss them into water, what they will do is assemble themselves into two molecule thick, so really thin sheets. And what they're doing is shielding those little tails, which don't like water, from the water. So you have like these little sheets where all the tails are facing each other inwards um, and the, the heads are on the outside facing the water. Um, I illustrate this in the book, of course. Uh, so you have this, this structure of this two-dimensional thin sheet just spontaneously forming from the physical interactions that the heads like water and the tails don't. And this is really quite deep because you know, you can ask yourself, where in my genome is the membrane-making gene or the lipid bilayer-making gene? And the answer is there isn't one. Or you could ask yourself, okay, what, you know, cellular machinery sticks lipids into place to make them into a membrane? And the answer is, again, there isn't one. What nature does is just create these lipid molecules and then rely on physical forces to shape this into this stupendously important structure of a membrane. So that's kind of what we mean by, by self-assembly. So every single uh, membrane in your body is made up of these lipid bilayers that just assemble themselves thanks to the physical, physical forces that are essentially embedded into the structure of the molecule itself. And so these things make themselves. And moreover, the properties that they end up having are, again, intimately tied to this kind of self-assembly. So now, again, you know, imagine in your mind this, this really thin... Um, sheet just made of these lipids that are just trying to shield their tails from the water. So we have this two molecule thick thing where the tails are facing each other on the, the inside of the sandwich and the, the heads are, are uh, on the, the outside of the sandwich. So there's no like chemical bonds or something that are holding one lipid to another. Um, it's just these, these physical forces. And what that means is like, you know, in the plane of the sandwich, the lipids can move around and kind of change places with one another. So the whole thing actually ends up behaving like a two-dimensional, because it's essentially extremely thin, like two molecules thick, a two-dimensional liquid. And that's an amazing material. Like that's something that, um, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing from a physical perspective as well. So we have a two-dimensional liquid. And what that means for your cells is that they can use that liquidity to like move things around in membranes and um, take stuff from one region to another and make this really a dynamic um, thing. So, um, yeah, so all of these membranes within you are, are a manifestation of this notion of like self-assembly and, um, and how nature makes, makes use of it to, to put stuff together. And this happens you know, over and over again, um, not just at the scale of, of very small things, but you know, cells putting themselves together into tissues and, uh, and so on. And that, and that gets to the, the, the whole notion of, of, of the connection to, uh, of, of biology and physics that, that for me, again, was so incredibly illuminating. Um, I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit when we talk, because you, you've already 
explain how one of the concepts you're discussing in the book is predictable randomness. And you do spend a, a chapter in this portion of the book talking about how these things are, uh, you know, all, all these you know, these building blocks are, are, are a great example of predictable randomness. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that a bit to uh, delve a little further into how this concept works when we're talking about biophysics. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a lot of manifestations of randomness, but uh, perhaps the most profound and the most important um, is something called Brownian motion. And that's basically this, this idea that basically everything is jiggling around. So if you were to look at little, you know, specks of dust in a mic, like floating around in water on a, in a microscope, they wouldn't be still, but they'd be jiggling around. Um, and everything jiggles around. It's it's unavoidable. It's universal. Um, and it was in, interestingly, it was actually discovered by a botanist, Robert Brown, who who made these observations in a microscope that everything is moving, and did really quite beautiful experiments, establishing that it was in fact not a biological thing uh, at all. But like even non-living things would would do that. Um, everything is jiggling around, and it took almost a century after Brown until. Einstein and others really realized that, you know, what this is, is a manifestation of something called thermal energy, uh, of which temperature is a measure. So if there's any non-zero temperature, there's thermal energy around, and that just gives a sort of random jiggling to everything. The bigger something is, the less that jiggling is, which is why we don't notice, you know, our uh, coffee cup and things like that moving around. But as you get to smaller and smaller scales, you know, dust particles, or especially like molecules and, and stuff like that, that random motion is, is really pronounced. So um, it's random, but, you know, you can talk you, how much on average things are moving is actually pretty well defined and has a good relationship to like sizes of molecules and temperature and stuff like that. So nature makes use of this an enormous amount. So right now, um, hopefully people are stimulated enough that their neurons are firing, uh, sending signals like from one neuron to another. And um, a lot of that occurs at what are called chemical synapses between neurons. So you have one neuron um, and then it kind of ends at a sort of finger-like projection. And then there's another finger almost, but not quite making contact with it um, that it wants to send a signal to. And so what it does is at the tip of that finger, the neuron will release uh, these neurotransmitter chemicals. And they have to get to the other neuron on the other side. And so, you know, you might think, okay, again, maybe there's some, you know, microscopic fairy system that's going to take things from one end to the other or some kind of, you know, specific biochemical uh, tool that does that. But no, what nature makes use of is this, this randomness, the fact that, okay, you just let these neurotransmitters go and they'll be jiggling around. So randomly, they'll just find their way across this chasm and make it to the other side. And you can't predict exactly when they'll end up there, but given the sizes of these molecules and the size of that gap, on average, it's a well-defined uh, kind of time, and you can rely on it. Um, yeah, it's a reliable process that your neurons can make use of to signal from one side to another. So, um, you know, all over the place, nature just makes use of the fact that, yeah, everything is, for example, moving, and moving quite a lot at microscopic scales, so you can rely on that, um, on that randomness and even, you know, the fact that it's a predictable sort of randomness. Mm -hmm. To give you another example, um, that sort of uh, jiggling around of molecules um, also plays a big role in how your body shape is developed when you're a when you're a when you're a, when you're an embryo. So, in 
all sorts of situations in an embryo. There are various proteins that are involved in signaling certain processes to occur, you know, signaling to this type of cell, um, you know, turn into skin or turn into bone or whatever. So again, generally what happens is at in one region, some of these signaling proteins are released and there's sort of a, a cloud of this diffusing away from that point. And it's random, um, you know, because there's this random jiggling of all of these things, but it's predictable and that there's an overall kind of reliable uh, shape to that, that smeared out cloud of, of protein molecules. So like in your hand, for example, you have some signaling molecules um, that are, you know, released on one side and where that, uh, where that uh, concentration is high, uh, you'll grow a thumb and where it's weak, you'll grow your little finger. Um, so nature makes use of these, uh, these so-called gradients of these diffusing molecules all over the place. You, uh, actually is, is, is a great way of, of, trans- of getting us to the next part of your book, which is about uh, this process of assembly. And I like the way you present it in the book because you start with embryos as you, as you just described, and then you move on to talk about, uh, uh you know, how you know, various parts of our body in terms of how they come together, you take us through what, and I, I love the phrase you use, the internal ecosystem that we have. And, and that brings us to talking, that bring, brought you to talking about, you know, size and, and shape and how that plays out more broadly. I was wondering if you could perhaps, you know, discuss that notion of assembly and the physical forces that are working in it. Yeah. So, um, as you mentioned, the whole second part of the book is on things kind of larger than the scale of molecules, right? collections of cells like in embryos um, or in whole kind of um, uh, like your gut microbiome and things like that. And what are the principles that, that put all of that together? And um, this is also this is a really neat one because this really is um, an area where we know quite a lot. But it's also, I think, one of the frontiers. Like, how do you um, how do you understand like how an embryo puts itself together? And um, as I describe it, it's also a, a kind of really important question because it also inter- intersects a lot of technological things like how could you grow organs uh, for like, you know, replacing defective organs and stuff like that. So there's a lot of really fascinating work going on these days of, of trying to make uh, things like so-called organoids, which are, as you might kind of guess from the, the name, organ-like things that are you know, grown in a test tube that recapitulate a lot of the functions of organs and so on. Um, and, you know, how can we coax cells to, to put themselves together in different sorts of ways? Um, it's also an interesting one because, you know, this notion that physical principles guide this has been in people's minds for a long time and is really, um, you know, really kind of coming into its own uh, in the last couple of decades. Um, I actually start off this section with, with a, a story that I just found fascinating um, from one of the early pioneers of um, so called developmental biology, so understanding you know, how embryos form and so on. Um, and this was Hans Dreisch, um, who is you know, a, a pioneer of, of these sorts of things. He was a German biologist who worked um, in Italy. And he and other kind of pioneers at this time would do these really interesting experiments, taking like a sea urchin embryo, for example, and moving cells around at very early embryonic stages. And one of the things he found was, you know, you could take a cell um, that, um, or you could kind of move cells around an embryo. So you could push an embryo so that a cell that would be, let's say on the top ends up being at the, at the bottom. And, 
you know, you shuffle around this, these cells, but the sea urchin develops normally as if the transported cells like know what location they're now in and are acting, you know, according to that new location. So um, this is really bizarre. And, you know, if you did that to like a watch or something like that, you know, move the pieces around, it's not going to work. Um, but apparently you can do this with the sea urchin. And this, this seems so unphysical and so kind of bizarre that Dreisch decided, you know, this is just totally nuts. I'm just going to give up on the study of biology completely. Um, so he did, and in fact, became a philosopher. Um, so nowadays, from a modern perspective, we realize, you know, you don't have to give up on biology or physics. Um, this actually can make sense if we think about, okay, what are the, the signals that dictate, you know, am I going to turn into a thumb or a little finger or whatever? And how do those sort of propagate through um the positions of, of like an embryo and how can we make sense of, of physical structure forming? Uh, so a lot of these things that have been on people's minds for a long time are now starting to, to, to make much more sense. Um, let's see where <laughs> I've forgotten actually what the question was. Talk about the notion of, 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 of assembly, which is the, the focus of the second part of your book. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, right. So here again, we have, uh, this idea of self-assembly manifesting itself. But here we have assembly kind of on larger scale. So you can ask, okay, what are the, um, what are the properties that are encoded in, in things that, that allow them to self-assemble into inter interesting structures? So there are, um, there are a lot of these. So one of them, for example, is that cells um, basically can make decisions about what type to be. So this happens all the time. You know, you have cells that decide, okay, am I going to become a neuron or am I going to become, um, you know, some, uh, like a glia or some, you know, other cell in the brain that, that has functions and provides support to them? Or am I going to become a T cell or a B cell in the immune system or any of these sorts of, of decisions? So, um, so cells can make decisions and they also can communicate with their neighbors. So cells have proteins at their surfaces that make connections to other proteins um, and can basically signal to other cells, you know, uh, various sorts of things. So you can build up patterns, or one of many ways in which you can build up patterns that are self-assembled, that are encoded in cells themselves, is if you have, for example, um, and I give, I'll phrase this in a kind of abstract way, but this does actually happen in, in real life. Let's imagine you had cells that were, that could be either type A or type B. And they inhibit each other. So a cell that's type A will send a signal to its neighbor that says, don't be A, uh, and similarly for B. So if you have kind of a, a, a sheet of these cells, like in a tissue in a developing embryo or something like that, every A is going to tell its neighbors around it, don't be, B, don't be A, so they'll turn into B. And all those Bs will tell their neighbors, don't be B, so they'll be A. So you can get a beautiful kind of um, hexagonal checkerboard kind of pattern of like A's and B's that um, yeah, have, a, have a kind of overall long range pattern that's just encoded by the individual behaviors of those cells. So that, that actually happened, for example, in your ears because um, you have these hair cells that are surrounded by a bunch of supporting cells in an arrangement that develops exactly from, from that type of patterning. So you can have like communication between cells being the, the mechanism for the self-assembly of larger scale structures. To give you another example, um, this one I go on, I kind of provide more illustration 
um, also literally, literally in the book, but uh, you know, you, we, we all can feel our, our vertebrae along our, our backbone. And it's this beautiful, very regular spacing of these. And how does that come about? Well, interestingly, that comes about um, because, again, when we were early embryos, cells in our um, cells in our in our embryonic body basically could make clocks. And um, how this works ties back to this other theme of circuits that um, these uh, kind of computations that, that biology is able to do can build all kinds of circuits, including ones that, that keep time, so that have some regular period of activity or something like that. Um, and I can say more about that if you like. But in any case, you have cells um, back when you were an, uh, an embryo that were just rhythmically um, executing some pattern of expressing various genes. So you have a clock that just keeps going and going. And that ends up being coupled to the growth of the embryo and the elongation along the backbone. And it turns out that those two things together, having a clock and having something that grows, well, you basically figured out how to turn that into just regularly spaced um, segments that ended up being like each of the, the segments along your, your backbone, each of which end up having like a vertebrae and associated stuff with them. So there again, the overall patterns end up being driven by the, the self-assembly or self-organization of the constituent pieces. So you don't have to like think from the top down and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, like Michelangelo with a chisel, like carve this thing into a backbone. I'm going to embed the instructions into the smaller pieces that make this up, and they're going to assemble themselves into the larger whole. And we, and driving that as a lot of these physical forces, and I thought where that really came across very nicely was when you were talking about notions of scale and how they determine things like size and shape. And I, I was I was particularly struck when you had the opening of of, of chapter ten, where you make the comparison between these two creatures that are uh, that that we associate entirely by their name, which is the rhinoceros beetle and the rhinoceros, and how you know they, they you know we superficially have given them the same name based upon one aspect of the physical form. But in every other respect, yeah, as you clearly demonstrate, they're 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 completely different. And how the differences that we see between the two are entirely a function of scale. Now, you, uh, the most obvious example you point out in terms of those two is how the rhinoceros has stumpy legs and the rhinoceros beetle has uh, spindly legs and how this it reflects the, you know, the, this notion of how they're adapting to physical form and how you couldn't necessarily have, uh, you know, see you know, the same form at a different scale. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the things that's sort of most... Uh, just kind of readily apparent. You don't need a microscope or anything like that to see it. You you look at a ant or an insect or something like that, and yeah, they have little spindly legs. And if you you know take a picture of that, or as I put in the book, a, a drawing of a rhinoceros beetle at the same size as a rhinoceros. I mean, it's it's really clear these are very different things, and um, the larger animals just have different shape than than the smaller ones. Um, so this is you know very evident. People have noticed this for you know probably millennia. In fact, one of the earliest like actual scientific treatments of this is from Galileo, um, who wrote about this back in the, in the 17th century. So, um, yeah, we, we have this kind of very obvious difference in shape between large and small things. And that is actually, yeah, a consequence of this, this physical notion of, of scaling. Um, and it's really quite, quite beautiful and, and remarkable to see. So fundamentally, 
you know, you have to ask yourself, okay, what, what are the forces acting on organisms when they try to do different things, whether that's walking or flying or, or whatever? And so if you're, you know, like a land animal, like our beetle or the rhinoceros, the, the things that are relevant for you are gravity pulling you down and the, the strength of your legs supporting you up. And um, those forces actually scale in different ways with size. So basically, gravity, um, how much gravity is pulling you down is proportional to how much mass you have. And that's, that's pretty intuitive. The more massive, you're twice as massive, you have twice as much the force of gravity there. And if you imagine taking like an animal and making it twice as wide, twice as long, and twice as high, it would have eight times the volume. And so eight times the mass. And so eight times the force of gravity pulling it down. But it turns out that the strength of bones or the strength of actually any beam, it's not, a, not even a, a biological statement, um, depends basically on the area, like the cross-sectional area of that beam. And this depends a little bit whether you're talking about like kind of compression or bending or whatever, but you know, roughly speaking, it's like that, the area of that. So if I had my, my, my leg bone and I just made it you know, twice as wide and twice as thick, I would just get a factor of four increase in how strong that is. So we can see a problem. As I imagine making animals bigger and bigger, the force of gravity is going to be pulling them down more. That's like that factor of eight. Then the increase in bone strength that I get, which is like that factor of four. So something has to happen. Either the animals are going to collapse as they get bigger, or they have to do what nature has actually done uh, via the processes of evolution, which is the bigger animals are going to have to evolve disproportionately thick bones. So the bigger animals, you know, the rhinoceros and so on, they have really chunky bones. And that's basically to, to, um, to account for this type of scaling. Um, so I actually teach a class on like biophysics for non-science majors, uh, which is a lot of fun. And um, through an interesting uh, set of historical events, the University of Oregon, we actually have an elephant skeleton. And so I actually bring in its femur to the class. And it's really just amazing to see just how stunningly thick this, this femur is. And I also often bring in like a coyote femur, so a much smaller animal. And you can really tell like if you... Um, just look at the ratios of length and width of these things. The elephant is just vastly thicker than, than uh, its femur is vastly thicker than, than the coyotes. Um, so these sorts of things end up uh, telling you an awful lot about um, kind of why animals and plants and so on have the shapes that they do. And there's more to it, of course, than just direct gravity. Um, one thing I talk about a little bit in the book is forces associated with moving through fluid actually end up scaling with size in different ways. So um, things that, uh, ways of moving that work for like a whale or a dolphin or like big creatures like that end up actually not working at smaller scales. So you will never find any bacterium that moves by flapping a tail back and forth, for example. They have to do other things like spinning corkscrews or, or doing other sorts of motions um, due to something called the the uh, reversibility of, of fluid flows um, and how that scales with size. Now, I mean, this is all very uh, important for, in terms of understanding so much of, of nature and and and, and biology and, and and the world in which we live. But you then take it to talk about how we can utilize this knowledge to uh, to uh, 
alter how things function. And, and here we're, you, uh, you you get into a realm that that people, some people might be familiar with from, from science fiction. We see all sorts of you know. Movies nowadays, novels about how we're going to, you know, sit there and, and do something with our DNA and, 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 and it's going to, you know, make all these changes. And, and what you talk about though is, it, uh, and I, and I like the fact that you don't just make it a, a purely, uh, you know, qu- purely a question of, of how, but you also talk about, you know, uh, what we can do, what we can't do. And you also introduced the question of why. I was waiting to perhaps start us off by talking about how it is that we can access DA by, by reading it and how these physical principles, uh, you know, shape our understanding of and our ability to access it. And then how it is that we can, you know, how these physical principles help us to rewrite that DNA. Yeah. Yeah. So this, um, Right. So all of this uh, things about biophysics, they end up, I mean, as, as you nicely said, illuminating how the world works, but yeah, also illuminating like how biotechnologies work and also what you yeah, can and cannot do with them. Um, and I also think this actually really intersects a lot of uh, questions that are important for like society and bioethics and stuff like that, because um, I really strongly feel that it, it, it is um, impossible or at least unwise to think about the, the kind of social or ethical issues related to these without understanding like what these um, tools and techniques actually do and, and uh, what the kind of links between the kind of biophysical reality of stuff and um, the aims or methods of, of technology are. So yeah, I start off actually talking about um, how we read DNA. So in other words, uh, these days everybody knows that we have sequenced the human genome. So what that actually means is that we know the uh, how to read out like the sequence of um, ACs, Ts, and Gs that uh, make up the DNA of, of humans or, or other organisms. And um, this has been a, a kind of amazing, um, just sort of technological story in itself. Like the the first human genome cost about um, a couple billion dollars to sequence. So it was a massive effort, like, you know, on the scale of, of going to the moon. And the price of sequencing um, a human genome has dropped from, you know, around a billion to less than 10,000, and actually more like a thousand, even less than a thousand dollars now. So a just stunning drop of um, a factor of a million within less than 20 years. And it's, Drops so much and becomes so easy that we can routinely do things like um, reading out genomes uh, of all kinds of plants, animals, and like humans, and do things like you know assess what are the likelihoods of uh, various genetic diseases and stuff like that. So the reading part of it, and really realizing how this has become um, so uh, so powerful and will continue to become even more powerful and more cheap and more ubiquitous. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about it is that these techniques for reading DNA actually really do make use of its physicality. So um, DNA, for example, you know, is an actual thing. Uh, it's material. It's tangible. Uh, we can all kind of envision the, the double helix in our mind. Uh, but it's a thing that has physical properties like you know, mechanical stiffness or things like electrical charge. So DNA, it turns out, is um, electrically charged. It's a very strongly negative molecule. So one of the kind of linchpins of all kinds of um, DNA-related technologies, including some of the early sequencing methods, are let's um, take pieces of DNA and we need to separate them out by sizes. Well, how can you do that? 
Well, you can stick your DNA in basically like jello, so something like a gel, um, and then apply an electric field, and that will cause the pieces of DNA to move um, differently depending on how big they are, and you can separate out different fragments and um, basically read the fragments and then assemble them together uh, into a genome. So if DNA weren't electrically charged, none of this would work. Um, and there's lots of instances like that where you know, the, the kind of actual physical properties of, of the, the molecule itself are really crucial. Um, similarly, a lot of the ways of reading DNA, um, they're again, like just astonishingly physical. So one of them, one of the very new methods um, that's very uh, uh, exciting these days is doing something called nanopore sequencing. So imagine you have like uh, you know a membrane or a thin sheet or something with a really tiny pore, about a billionth of a meter in size, so a millionth of a millimeter, and you thread DNA through that little pore. And DNA is pretty similar in diameter to that pore, and the different letters of DNA, the A's, C's, T's, and G's, are, are slightly different sizes. And then you measure like how electrical current goes through that pore just from like ions, like salt or something like that, being able to go through that pore while the DNA is also in the pore. Well, since the DNA is a physical thing blocking that, but a physical thing whose size depends on like what letter happens to be in the pore at that time, your electrical current that you measure will depend on what letter is exactly sitting there in the pore. And then as, if you imagine dragging that DNA through, you can look at that electrical current and then one by one, read out from how much current is going through what letter was blocking the pore. So this is kind of amazing, just looking at just the, the um, you know, physical blockage of a pore by a stiff little DNA molecule as a way to read out a genome. But this actually works. And you can actually buy a device the size of a USB thumb drive that actually does this and reads out the DNA sequence of stuff. And people are using this, for example, to sequence the genomes of bacteria you know, when there's like an outbreak of some like bacterial disease or things like that, just with this, you know, simple, fast, portable um, technique that just depends intrinsically on what are the physical properties of DNA. Um, so reading, yeah, reading DNA, you know, just really intrinsically makes use of, um, of biophysics and these physical principles. And that's especially, I think, a story that's not at all well, uh, well known. And it's, it's just... You know, it, it's really fascinating. Um, and I think, you know, we still kind of compartmentalize education. And say, if you learn about DNA, it's only in the context of like, you know, your biology class or maybe like chemistry or biochemistry, but these physical aspects of it end up being as central as, as everything else. And as you explained, biophysics also dictates a lot of what we can and can't do with it. I mean, for example, we can't use, uh, you know, uh, DNA uh, rewriting to create, say, six foot large ants. Right, right. <laughs> or, yeah, exactly. Or... That's a great. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's actually a fantastic point. Right. So, um, right. So, what what nature can and can't do, and this comes actually now to the the issue of writing genes and so on. So, um, what I was talking about there is you know reading genes, but now we also have technologies um, to. You know, once you read genes to select genomes that have particular traits, and I'll comment on that in a moment, um, and also thanks to things like CRISPR, actually alter genomes and write them in different ways. And there's a lot of, of interesting biophysics in that as well. But there's some really key points to kind of keep in mind with that. One is that 
um, as actually you, you nicely put, you know, you can't, um, you know, th there isn't a, a gene that you, uh, that you will write in that will suddenly make you float or something like that. Um, it's still <laughs> the case that nature, you know, what, what, um, what the organism is doing is still bound by physical laws and by the properties of the materials that, that, um, that it's made of. And you can't, you can't get around that. So there's no, there's no magic that this will um, lead to. The other thing that's really interesting, and this really comes into some of the, the current day, um, I'm not sure debates is the right word, but just things that people are thinking a lot about. Okay, even with genes um, that are, you know, obeying the laws of physics and so on, what can and can't you do? And how, what guides and constrains that? And this also this ends up actually tying really back really well into these ideas of, of randomness, but also these notions of like regulatory circuits. Like what uh, what are these genes that are encoded in the genome? Um, yeah, what are they doing? And are they doing things themselves or in concert with other genes? So what I mean by that is that there are um, certain diseases, for example, like cystic fibrosis, where there really is one gene, so one like stretch of DNA. Um, that is encoding for a particular protein. Um, I describe how that works in the book, but uh, basically it creates a particular protein. And if you have cystic fibrosis, it means that there's a defect in that gene that leads to a defective protein. So if you can um, rewrite that gene, you'd have a perfectly fine protein and you would not have cystic fibrosis. Okay. It's a slight simplification, but it's, it's actually quite close to reality. In contrast, there are traits like, for example, height where there isn't actually a height gene, but height is very genetic. So the resolution of that paradox is that there isn't a height gene, but there are thousands, in fact, that have a slight influence on height. So um, all of these, almost like a random jiggling around, um, are doing sort of small things, um, but together they can add up to, um, to, to big things. So when we talk about things like gene editing, it really matters a lot what kind of traits we're talking about. Because you could imagine using these DNA reading techniques, finding, for example, in an embryo that's, that's going to undergo like in vitro fertilization, um, finding and then editing using some of these tools, like one gene for cystic fibrosis and um, more or less eliminating like the risk of that. But it is exceptionally hard to imagine and certainly impossible with any present day thing to imagine directly writing all like you know 5,000 genes that are influencing height or a lot of these other quite complex traits so that distinction is is one that's um kind of between like sort of genes that are doing kind of simple things and genes that are kind of part of more complex circuitries that nature makes use of so um I elaborate on, on this in the, in the book, but there is, you know, often in, especially in, you know, the um, more science fiction-y or sensationalist parts of speculation <laughs> of the future, that distinction, I think, is often missed that, you know, okay, if we can alter a gene, it means that, oh, yeah, if we just poke on this one gene, we'd have, you know, the race of superhumans or something either... Uh, thrilling or terrifying, depending on your point of view. But there's a, there's there's nuance to that. And I think really understanding the origins of that nuance are, are important to making kind of decisions about what we want to do with these sorts of technologies. 
Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, yeah. So um, in my research lab, actually, our, our main focus these days, almost our entire focus is on looking at the gut microbiome. And this is one where even for biophysicists, this is an unusual topic. Um, so as uh, as you may, well, these days, I think it's, it's uh, quite commonly known that you have a lot of bacteria in you. Um, <laughs> a vast community of microbes that are mostly resident in your, um, uh, in your gut, in your intestine. And in fact, you actually have um, probably a bit more, more bacterial cells in your body than human cells, which is kind of mind-blowing. So these, um, these bacteria, they're basically almost like a, a shadow organ that you have that ends up influencing a lot of things related to like immune responses and um, various diseases and so on. And because of that, it's attracted a huge amount of attention and there's a lot of, of investigation of how these work. So one thing that my research lab got um, interested in a while ago is, you know, I started thinking more about the gut microbiome and realizing, okay, well, you know, we know a lot about it, but most of this information comes from doing things like DNA sequencing, in fact, of like fecal samples. And that's great. It tells you what genes are there, what species are there, and so on. But it doesn't tell you about how these things are organized in like space and time. And if you imagine any like macroscopic ecosystem, you know, you go to your, the tide pools on the coast, uh, which is, I guess, reveals that I'm an Oregonian, but, um, or a forest <laughs> or a jungle or anything like that, you know, if somebody said they would try to understand a jungle and not know that, you know, trees are stationary and monkeys can climb trees and leopards can run around, like you would have a terrible understanding of how that ecosystem worked. I mean, understanding its structure and dynamics are really central. So we asked ourselves, okay, what is the structure and dynamics of like the gut microbiome? And that's a tough question. And what we realized is that you can use, you know, it's hard to look into human guts, but um, young zebrafish, which are a popular uh, so-called model organism, you can actually see, if you do uh, some good microscopy, you can look into their guts and actually start looking at um, what is the spatial organization of gut microbes. And that's turned out to be really fascinating. We find some species do, you know, like the leopards run around, they're very motile and um, kind of almost like a swarm of bees. Others are very aggregated and non-motile. And you can perturb this with things like antibiotics um, that of course have a lot of, of health implications. So we're basically doing um, a lot of stuff to try to kind of map out and make sense of what is the, the spatial and, and biophysical structure of the gut microbiome. So that occupies a lot of my time. <laughs> well, it sounds like a fascinating project. I, w I wish you the best of luck with it. Well, thank you. Uh, Raghavir, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. This has been great. Thanks a lot.